Please take your Bibles and open them to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs chapter 2. This is a book I don't think I've ever in the life of Crossway that I can remember preached from. Proverbs is a strange book to preach from. So the the first uh, nine or ten chapters are a little more um, unified and thematic. In some ways, Proverbs feels like a bucket of godly fortune cookies. You know, good, clean statements that tell you how to live wisely in short um, little statements. The section we're going to look at this morning in Proverbs chapter 2 is is unified around the pursuit of wisdom. Now, many of you know Solomon, the man who God gave this special gift of wisdom to, is the author of this book. And so he writes to his son. So in many ways, he's preparing a young man to be a prince, a leader, a godly man among the nation. Um, But I think it's much more than that. I think God uses it, and maybe structurally we can think of it this way, the commandments in the Old Testament gave kind of an outline. Maybe, maybe think like, you know, like a kindergartner gets a, a, a coloring worksheet. There's no color in it. It's just the lines, and that's the commandments. And then the filling in of the color for everyday life is the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is, is not, I mean, we often talk about are there promises or something along those lines or principles. I, I think that kind of twisted out of its format. The Old Testament law came, gave, uh, gave provisions and blessings and promises with it. And the book of Proverbs, again, it's filling in the color that the law gave an outline to. So when you look in Proverbs chapter 2, as Solomon's challenging his son to, to approach life with wisdom, he calls upon his son to, to act in certain ways. Now, if you've been alive for any amount of time, you've seen people that are foolish You've seen people that are wise, and sometimes it takes a little while to see the outcome of those behaviors. Uh, my, my uncle on my mom's side is a man who's a fool, biblically speaking. Grew up in a good Christian home, but I would say two things have destroyed his life. He is the laziest man I've ever met, and he's a man who just wants to have fun. And so now he's probably 74. He has none of his family around him. He is a poor man despite a huge inheritance. His mind is rotten by drugs. And he is a man who none of you would want to trade places with. If I were to contrast him to my mom, who was the younger sister in that, my mom has family who loves her. She has a husband who cares for her despite her being on her deathbed for the last five years. She has children and grandchildren who love the Lord and love her and care for her. Any one of those family members would would financially and physically sacrifice deeply to support and care for her. My mom is surrounded by blessings despite her physical life wasting away. If you compare those two, it's not that they grew up in different homes or heard different things. The difference between those two lives is wisdom. When they were in high school, they probably looked like they were going the same place. One might have looked like they were having a little more fun doing it. And in fact, what you have is a profile of wisdom and a profile of folly that now as the nephew of one and the son of another, it is so clear 
but I can remember when I was about an eight-year-old sitting on my uncle's boat as we ate dinner, and, and he probably had wine. I had no clue what he was drinking. Didn't even think about stuff like that when I was eight. I just thought it was really cool to be sitting on my uncle's boat and kind of look at my parents like, what's wrong with you? Get your act together. And we could have a boat. And I wouldn't want my parents to trade places with him for all the money in the world. So how, how do you secure an outcome that is sweet, eternal, and good versus an outcome that there might be moments and glimpses of goodness, but the decay and the destruction is certain? How, how do you avoid that certain destruction and land in certain goodness? Proverbs would say, with wisdom. With wisdom, this is how you do it. You live in God's way, in God's world, and you live with wisdom, and you secure a righteous response to life. Charles Spurgeon defines wisdom as the right application of knowledge. The right application of knowledge. When we come to chapter 2, let me just show you the framework of the first 11 verses. He says, my son, if you receive it's that phrase, if, repeated again in uh, verses 3 and verses 4. And so he starts out in the first four verses with these conditional statements, if, if, if. There's actually kind of eight verbal clauses there, if this, if this, if this. Then look down in verse 5. Then you will. And then you come down again into verse 9. Then you will. So, so there are three, three kind of divisions if you think about it. Verses 1 through 4 ifs. Verses 5 through 8, then. And then verses 9 through 11, another set of thens. All right, so we're going to break it down that way because that's how, how Proverbs is or, or this how Solomon is kind of framing it for us. So in verses 1, 1 through 4, we have the pursuit of wisdom. Maybe I could just like more directly say it this way. You must pursue wisdom. Maybe I put in brackets there. With hard work. Okay, wisdom doesn't come naturally. That's the whole point, is it must be pursued with energy, with intention, with desperation. Look at verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then... And he begins to explain the conclusion of, if you do this, pursue wisdom. Solomon challenges his son, and by extension, all of us, pursue wisdom. If you're looking in verses 1 and 2, there's a passivity to this pursuit. And in verses 3 through 4, there's an active pursuit of it. Verses 1 and 2, receive it, and then treasure. Verses, verse 2, make your ear attentive and incline your heart. It's almost as though he's talking to a young son who's sitting in school, who can't read. And he's saying, son, listen up. Well, why does he have to listen? Because he can't read. Because he doesn't know about life. He doesn't even have a filter. And so he needs to receive from his wise, sage dad what his dad is telling him. Uh, I had the joy and the sorrow of watching my daughter play volleyball this last couple days. Um, Apparently, me leaving has really helped the team because now they've won games. They didn't win a single game, 
when I was present. But it's funny to hear these parents talk, and they're not believers. But one of them was commiserating that parent that the kids will never agree with what you're telling them until they have their own kids. And then you'll hear like, oh, mom, dad, you're so right. Well, the challenge here is that unlike that prototypical child who thinks they know everything, the person who wants to be wise leans into instruction to hear and be moved by the commands, the wisdom, and the teaching of Solomon. Now, just so that we're getting the framework right, Solomon sees himself as a mouthpiece of God's word. In other words, this is not Solomon just saying, like, hey, you know, fake it till you make it. Some, like, statement that has nothing in common with Scripture. In fact, you go down to verse 6. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. The expectation is that what Solomon is instructing his son is derived from God's word. He's not creating it out of whole cloth. He's not inventing it. It's not his imagination. It's not some parable he got off TV. This is scripture that Solomon is instructing his son in. So when he says, listen up, he's actually calling on his son to be submissive to his interpretation and understanding of the Bible because he's spoon-feeding this young man what God's word says. So look at the response of this young man who wants wisdom. Receive, treasure, make your ear attentive, and incline your heart. Particularly in verse 2, ear attentive would have the idea of listen with an ear to obey. And then he continues, incline your heart, which would presume a memorization and a desire to make this part of how he views life. Okay, so the expectation of this dad to his son is that he's memorizing studying, and listening with an inclination to do whatever his dad says is wise. That's pretty intense. This is what it looks to pursue wisdom. It's that we hear God's word, we listen to instruction with an ear not to just understand, not to just be entertained, but that we would apply it to our lives and to work at memorizing it. Something like Psalm 119. That your word have I... Where? That memorization is actually part of the discipline of wisdom. If you are not learning God's word and absorbing it in such a way that it's part of how you view life, you're not really a student of wisdom yet. But there's more activity. Look at verses 3 and 4. Call out for insight. Raise your voice for understanding. There might be implications to prayer there, just the pursuit but probably more the idea of seeking to know by asking insightful questions so that there can be better comprehension. The child who never asks a question in class is probably not a learner or they're brilliant. But when it comes to understanding God's word, none of us begins at brilliance. We all wake up dumb and learn through life and become wise through the pursuit of wisdom. Remember, wisdom is the right application of knowledge. Make it a righteous application so we understand there's a moral fiber to it. It's not just correct. That's not what I mean by right. I mean the righteous, upright, moral application of knowledge. So he says, 
Call out for insight. Raise your voice for understanding. And then seek for it like silver. Search for it as hidden treasures. Now, he's using a metaphor here, so let me just steal it. I want you to imagine that someone gives you a silver mine. How much is that silver mine worth to you? How much money will it produce for you if you do nothing with it? In order to get the silver out of the mine, what's the expectation? You have to, you have to dig, you have to labor, you have to leverage that resource with a lot of other resources to get what's good from it. I do think there's probably a Christian sloth and laziness that we just expect wisdom will come easily. Wisdom, like a silver mine, is something that's handed to us, but in order to get its benefit, it requires work. So if I were just to simply ask you the question, what type of work have you been doing in the last month or two to grow in wisdom? Like, What does that look like for you? There's a passivity in verses 1 and 2 that maybe is reflective of this moment, where you're sitting there, someone else has done the silver mining, and saying, hey, here's some silver. And you just sit there like, yeah, oh, this is good silver. Yeah, but what are you going to do tomorrow? You need to go back into that mine yourself and dig some more? Get dirty? Work hard? Or are you just going to wait for next week? We wonder why Christians are poor in wisdom. Maybe it's because they're lazy in pursuing it. Are you pursuing wisdom? By understanding and coming to God's word, by calling out to God for help, by asking perceptive questions that lead you to better answers. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. It's something I think the Bible very clearly teaches. And what the sufficiency of Scripture means is this. There is not one area of your life in which God's word does not direct either through command or principle. Not one area of your life. God is concerned about your cell phone use, how you pay your taxes, how you interact with your children when they annoy you. God is concerned about how you spend your free time. He's concerned about how many hours you sleep at night. God is concerned about every area of your life, and his scripture instructs you in all of it so that you live wisely. Are you pursuing wisdom? Now, the book of Proverbs may feel like a list of, I mentioned fortune cookies, A fortune cookie commands and imperatives that leave you with this overwhelming list of the wise person does, 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 does. And so maybe you read the first four verses of this passage and you feel like the burden of doing is laid out in front of you with more commands. Do this, do this, do this. But verse 5 and following tell us that the upshot of someone who pursues wisdom is not someone who's regulated in their behavior, but is someone who's passionate And walks with God. Look in verse 5. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. And you will find the knowledge of God. So, pursue wisdom. God provides wisdom. Okay, so we have the pursuit and now we have a provision. In other words, wisdom is not something you find randomly. It's something that God grants Look at verse 6. The Lord gives wisdom. Wisdom is not something you discover. It is something God grants to you. So we go back to verse 5 and we ask the question, what exactly does Solomon think is the outcome of a young boy who pursues wisdom? 
I would suggest to you that he is using Old Testament language that should communicate to us saving grace. So sometimes we talk about a God-fearing man, and what we mean is by this is someone who has kind of a Judeo-Christian ethic and, and has integrity. I think that's far short of what Scripture means by God-fearing man. In verse 5, he says, The fear of the Lord and, and knowledge of God are the fruits of the pursuit of wisdom. He's speaking of a personal walk with and a saving relationship with our God. So if you're defining the fear of the Lord, and I intend to do a little bit more work on this for you all in the coming weeks, the fear of the Lord is this, and I'm stealing this from Charles Bridges. The fear of the Lord is a loving reverence by which we humbly and carefully obey all God's commands. All right, let me say that again for you because I think it captures a lot that we need to say in here. It is a loving or, or affectionate reverence by which we humbly and carefully obey all of God's commands. Okay, when we look up the word fear, in fact, I looked it up as I was thinking through how to frame this well, because I wanted to find synonyms for fear. They're all negative. They're all negative. So when I challenge you, you need to fear the Lord, you're probably like, oh, that doesn't feel very good. Right, like, who wants to be afraid of God? Who wants to be afraid of the one who says he loves us? I think we're, we're missing it with our common uh, language with the word fear. But if we were to say something like reverence, I think we capture a little bit more of what is going on here. And that is the idea that I am very concerned with pleasing God because I love him. Maybe like a young man, when he's getting ready to propose to this woman who he loves with his whole heart, and he's getting ready to buy her this engagement ring, and he's preparing in his mind the moment when he's going to ask her this question, and he's trying to set out the whole evening in the best possible framework, he is terrified. What's he terrified of? He's not afraid of his soon-to-be fiance. It's not like when, when she opens the door, he, he you know, flinches back like, oh. He's not afraid of her that way, but what is he afraid of? He's afraid that she might not like the ring. Afraid that he might mess up and flub the ask. Right? So how many times do you think that young man processes that evening and prepares and equips himself so that this woman that he loves with his heart is not offended or insulted, but is in fact honored and pleased and delighted with that moment? Is he afraid of her? Not, not in a sense of terrified, but in a sense of he cares so deeply to honor and please her that he spends so many hours and so much money and thought so that that night would please her. So to the believer who is devoted to the Lord is concerned that he would do anything, say anything, or present to the Lord in anything in his life something that is displeasing, off-putting, or distasteful to his king. It is, it is more than simply that type of fear. I think there's a recognition by the believer that to be outside, to be a stranger to the grace of God, is actually terrifying. Right? It's, it's not 
merely the fear of displeasing a fiancé type of fear. It's the recognition that the anger of God against the injustice of sin is so severe and so intense and the penalty is so overwhelming that there is a fear that underlies rejection of God completely. What keeps a believer loving Christ is in fact a sweet gratitude that Jesus Christ has carried the wrath of God for us. And that to be outside of the forgiveness that Christ offers is to once again find ourselves under the wrath of God. And were it possible to walk away from Christ, every Christian who knows the theology of God's holiness would be shaking in terrified fear. If we were to able to erase Christ from all of human history, everyone who knows the book would be in a fetal position crying on the ground in fear. Because once again, God's wrath, unmitigated, would be coming for you. But this is the sweetness of walking in the fear of God, is that we know God's wrath has been fully satisfied in Christ. We are no longer afraid of his condemning judgment. We live in a reverence, a fear, like the man who loves his soon-to-be wife. And so he moves his behavior, his words, his thoughts, his actions so that he does not find her displeasure directed at him. That affection and reverence by which we humbly and carefully obey God is the fear of the Lord. If I were to ask you, do you have it? Do you so love God? Do you so fear his disapproval that you humble yourself under all of his commands and lovingly, carefully pursue his will? Is that you? That is the heart of a person saved by grace. That is the heart of a person who trusts God for salvation. Further, if you look back in the text in verse 5, he says, they have the knowledge of God. I know I've said this before, but many of you are relatively new to our church. Knowledge in the Old Testament is often a euphemism for sexual intimacy. And it's, it's, it's a sense of close, personal knowledge of someone. So when, he, when Scripture says, we have a knowledge of God. He is not saying we pass systematic theology class in seminary. He is not saying we can pass an examination of Bible information. He's saying that there is a close fellowship where we relate to God and know him and he knows us. You can't have that without some sense of theology. But like, I can't have a good marriage if I don't know who I'm married to. And probably more than just her name. Right? Like I need to know her and relate to her and interact with her in order to have a healthy marriage. So consider what Solomon said then. He says, son, pursue wisdom. And if you do, the outcome is saving grace as you walk with God. Now, sometimes Proverbs is taken as an un, like a book that's not Christ-centered or isn't very Christian or isn't very devotional. And yet Solomon starts out by saying this, pursue wisdom, and the outcome is walking with God in saving relationship. Continuing on, look at verse 6. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes understanding and knowledge. Okay, so this person who pursues wisdom, hopefully that's us, as we Pursue wisdom, 
We walk in the fear of the Lord and in fellowship with him. And he gives us what? He gives. No, he doesn't give wisdom. It says he stores it up in verse 7 for the upright. It's almost as though God is telling us this thought. I've given you wisdom. I've stored it up for you. Here's this storehouse, not of knowledge, but of knowledge and how to apply it correctly to life. Knowledge and how to do it. Knowledge and how to express worship with it. That is, knowledge in the scripture is never the end. It is always the means to the end. Good knowledge ends in better worship. A good theology of God ends up in a sweet walk with him. An understanding of God's eminence and power leads to sweet prayer and trust. Knowledge leads to a transformed life in Scripture. And so we look in verse 6, God gives wisdom from his mouth. That means, I think in here, the words of Scripture give knowledge and understanding. He stores it up for those who are upright and walk in integrity. Further, it leads to protection. Okay, so the pursuit of wisdom, the provision of wisdom through God, through his word, and ultimately it leads to a life that's protected by God. Look in verses, well, I'll start back in verse 8, but you'll see this theme of guarding and protection moving forward in verses 9, 10, and 11. So the person who walks in integrity, verse 7, is guarded in his paths. He is watched over, right? Like he, he, he lives in wisdom and righteousness and justice in verse 9. But then you come to verse 11 and you see that discretion watches over and understanding guards him. There is a natural protection and a supernatural protection in this text, and they fit together. So who's guarding this, this son who's growing in wisdom? Who's guarding that son in verse 8? I want you to trace it with me. Look, look again in verse 7. He stores up wisdom for the upright. Who's the he? Verse 7, he is a shield. Who's the shield? Okay, verse 8. Guarding the path, that continues on from the previous pronoun, so he is a shield, he is guarding. So who's the, doing the shielding and the guarding? God is, right? You guys tracking? Who is watching over his saints? Verse 8. Now I want you to come to verse 11. Discretion will watch over you. Does that sound familiar? Now who is doing the watching? Discretion. Understanding will guard you. Who's doing the guarding here? So here's the promise of divine protection, verses 7 and 8. But as Solomon begins to pull that apart, he's saying, here's how God protects you, through the righteous application of his word. In other words, God has given you divine defense against hurt and injury and, and the troubles of this life in so many ways. Here's one of the primary ways he's given it to you. Wisdom. And that's not to strip God of the glory of protecting you. God gloriously says, hey, life is hard in this sin-cursed world. Here's how you should navigate it so that you're protected against all sorts of pain and sorrow and trouble. And we want God to do it miraculously. So, God, please give me lots of money. You can almost hear the divine voice of Proverbs saying, get a job. What type of an answer is that? I, I want to 
fat bank account. Like, lottery ticket, please. And Proverbs says something about that. Like, money that is gained quickly disappears quickly. And it brings sorrow upon the one who has it. Have you ever looked at the lottery winners? It's like Solomon had insight. He did. God's word and God's wisdom. It's like, well, I'm having a hard time keeping my job. You almost hear Proverbs say back, stop being lazy. Right? Work hard, stop being lazy. He even talks about like a wise person's house is kept up. And he walks by the, ho- or the house of the, the foolish man and his field is in ruins and his fence is in disarray. God gives wisdom as a grace to protect you from your stupidity's consequences. You want to meet someone who has a lot of hurt in their life? Sometimes, I would say maybe oftentimes, it's self-inflicted sorrow. Why does life hurt? I married poorly against my parents' wishes. I don't work hard. I'm always angry and yelling at my wife. I don't have enough discipline to be a good dad when my kids are younger, and now that they're in their 20s and 30s, I'm having to have my kids move back home because their marriages are falling apart. Now, I I don't know that living in wisdom is intended to be an absolute protection. Don't let that dissuade you from pursuing wisdom. Wisdom is one of the means, and I would suggest you maybe even a primary means by which God protects you in this life. If you want God to protect you, be wise. But it's not, it's not like wisdom is this thing. The person who is wise does what? He walks with God. He fears the Lord. He knows his God. In other words, the person who is protected by wisdom isn't merely someone who has wisdom as a thing in his life. He also has a sweet fellowship with his God. So that as life comes at him, he's responding into, in trials or in blessings in such a way that his walk with God is evident and God protects him by the right application of knowledge. So going back to this text, I want to take you back to verse 5. So you'll understand the fear of the Lord. You'll find knowledge. Well, how do I know I will? Because the Lord gives it in his word. So what is the confidence that this young man won't be a rockhead when he's 30? Well, if you pursue God's word, God gives wisdom. If you pursue the God of the word, God gives his presence. God is gracious. Not only does that, he's stored up wisdom for the person who walks in uprightness. I want, you to, I want you to picture the sweetness of this. As Solomon's pleading with his son, pursue wisdom. He's saying, if you pursue wisdom, God will come to you. Right? Like, you pursue wisdom, and you'll walk in the fear of the Lord, and God will come and relate to you. There is no one in all of human history who has turned to God in faith and been rejected. Not one. And Solomon is leveraging his confidence in the ever-present grace of God to the repentant, faith-filled sinner and saying, Son, pursue him. 
How do I know I'll get wisdom? If you pursue it, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. Because the Lord gives wisdom, and he stores up wisdom for the upright, and he guards their paths, verse 8. And then he doubles down, verse 9. If you pursue wisdom, then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. Solomon begins to peel apart this practice of wisdom as a path. Right? Verse 9, there's a path. If you go back to verse 11, as we walk our life, he'll guard us and he'll protect us. And then you go to verse 12 and verse 16, and there's two ways it protects us. It delivers us from evil people with twisted speech. Verse 16, and also delivers us from sexual sin. Verse 20, the upshot of the wise young man's life is walking in the way of goodness, walking in the paths of righteousness, living in God's precious place of Israel, living with integrity. What happens to the person who's a fool? How does it describe him? Verse 22, the wicked are cut off. Can I just suggest to you that in verses 21 and 22, we have hints of eternal life and salvation. This is, this is not a text of like gospel preaching, right? This is, you know, Solomon is not sitting down with his son and saying, son, you need to have faith in God that he through the sacrifice will provide a means for atoning your sins. And at the same point, you can't lose the gospel in this text. Pursue wisdom in God's word and God will graciously meet with you. He will send wisdom to protect you. He will be present with you. You will know God, and you will know his word. And it will lead you to walk in the wise way, so that you do not walk with sinners, you do not sin sexually and corrupt your soul, and the ultimate outcome in verses 21 is a life that is long. Again, I, I think there's hints of eternal life there. In verse 22, the consequence of rejecting God and his word and his wisdom is sudden death. Like certain and clear destruction. Now he is, I think, again, mostly focused on this life. But if the consequence of this life are a long and sweet life for those who walk in wisdom versus a short and sudden end for those who walk in folly, then we can at least recognize that God is showing us the reward of those who walk with him is life. And the reward of those who is righteous, those who are righteous, is life. And the reward of those who don't trust him is death. The reward of those who don't walk with him in loving faith is death. So on two levels, let me just appeal to you. Walk with God by rightly applying his word so that you can have the fullest life in this life and eternal life hereafter. Turn away from folly so that you do not experience the consequences of a shortened and miserable life in this life and ultimately eternal destruction. Trust and walk with God.
So let me, let me explain how I think you see those in the text. Pursue knowing God and his word, which you do. Here's how you feel about it. You trust that God will be gracious in his presence as you pursue wisdom in his word. Right? Pursue wisdom, then you will know God and fear him. So I, I pursue wisdom trusting in God. Wisdom is energized by faith. I trust that God will provide wisdom, and then I trust that through that wisdom, he'll protect me. So there's two trusts. One, that God will be present, and the second, that he will protect through wisdom. The pursuit of wisdom is actually a test of faith. So if I were to ask you, and you, like many of us, struggle with the discipline then when you come to reading your Bible in any given week, it's like eating your vegetables. Or for those of you who are getting to that stage of life, like taking your pills, you know, where like, it's not part of your rhythm of life, and you just got to remember to take that dumb pill. And, and especially if your health doesn't immediately like dive bomb, remembering to take that pill might be a, a real hard pattern of regularity for you to get into. And so you end the week, and maybe you've read your Bible once or twice. Or maybe because your wife reminded you to read your Bible with the kids, you've actually read your Bible. But really, you've only read it for your kids' sake. Say, well, what motivates you to read your Bible? What energizes you? Is this thought, at least in this text, that my constant pursuit, like looking for treasure, my constant work at knowing God's mind brings rich reward of the presence of God and protection from him. I'm amazed by how often people don't actually think that's true. Life throws something hard at you, and it's like, God, why are you, why are you doing this? Pray request, God, God, please rescue me from this thing. And God's like, I wonder if he's ever frustrated by this thought. Like, I told you how to avoid it. I told you how not to get in this mess. I have protected you, and you ignored my protection. And now you want me to rescue you, and you're still not reading my book about how to get out of the mess. I'm always amazed. Um, I, I have huge license today. There's only one girl from my home in the room. I'm just saying that I can tell all sorts of stories and get away with it for the most part. I'm always amazed by the lack of understanding in my children about things I think they should know. My daughter, Addison, just got her driver's license. By the way, she's not here, so I'm just saying. Um, what is amazing to me is she doesn't know how to get gas. And I'm just thinking, how do you not know how to get gas at a gas station? She doesn't know how to use a credit card, which is, I mean, fantastic. <laughs> but she literally doesn't know how to get gasoline. So, like, she was trying to figure it out the other day. Her and her 16-year-old friend, it was a 16-year-old friend who needed to get gas, pulls up to the gas station. They had to ask help from a nearby stranger to figure out how to get the pump and the credit card system working so that they could get gas in the car. And I was just thinking, how can you not 
know this? Like, how can you not know how to slide your credit card, or even now you just, like, hold it up to the pump, right? You don't even have to slide the thing. Put the handle in. It does terrify me a little bit that I'm going to get diesel in my gasoline car, but <laughs> the upside of her not knowing how to use a credit card is pretty high, so I don't know if I'm going to demystify the credit card usage. Perhaps you are like my daughter, All the tools and all the learning has been available for 16 years of her life. She has seen me do this hundreds of times. She's seen her mom pull up to gas stations and pay with a credit card and put that handle in the gas tank. She has seen it. She could have asked questions. There is no lack of opportunity, and she still had no clue. And I can only imagine... That while she's an expert on the cell phone, the only thing it'd be good for that gas station is calling dad and saying, dad, please help. And I can almost hear, and she wouldn't do this, but just imagine that she'd be like, dad, how come you never told me? <laughs> like, I've been doing this. At any point you could have asked, I'd be happy to teach you. I had no idea that something so obvious and ever-present in your life was out of your knowledge base. I wonder if God in heaven ever looks at us that way. We're sitting there like, God, please give me wisdom. And he's thinking, I've given it to you. You're 28 years in. How do you not know this? Or we read verses like this, that in the middle of trials, James tells us that we can ask of God and he'll give wisdom. And so we're sitting there in the middle of a major soul-wrenching trial. We're like, God, please give wisdom. And God's like, I did. It's already been given. You've had it. Read it. Read it with understanding. Pursue it. Dig into it like a, a silver mine. Treasure its truths like precious minerals. Love it and know it and walk with me and you'll be protected. You're praying right now because you're clueless. This, the guilt is not with me told you all you need to know. We're sitting by the gas pump of life, our car is empty, and we think somehow our Father in heaven has shortchanged us. I'm going to say it again because I think the definition helps us. Wisdom is the right application of knowledge. You can know a lot about God's word and still be foolish, dumb as a box of rocks still do stupid things. Some of us need to recognize that we actually don't fear the Lord, but we are experts in Christology, in a doctrine of redemption. Listen, God wants us to want his will. He wants us to pursue his agenda. Wisdom is the right doing, the right application, the righteous obedience that comes from true knowledge from Scripture. So, as we think through wisdom then, we pursue it in God's Word, trusting God to provide it as we walk in fellowship with Him, trusting Him to use wisdom to protect us from life's chaos and dangers and even our own sinfulness. Trust, trust, pursue.
if you're struggling with pursuit, you probably are not aware that you're not trusting. When you trust, it will bear fruit in a joyful pursuit of God and his ways through his word. May God make this church and all of his churches throughout the world places where wisdom is flourishing. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is not merely a light to our path. It is also an expression of the true and living way that leads to an abundant life and eternal life. I pray that you would help us to see how sweet it is to fear you and to know you. Lord, I pray that you would stir up first in our church family a deep trust that you are present with those who call on your name, that you dwell with those who pursue you through an understanding of you and your word and a response of faith. Lord, help us to be trusting you. Lord, help us to also not trust our own wisdom, but rather trust the wisdom in your word. Our world and even our culture and even our own mind will betray us and lead us into paths of folly. Lord, help us rather to trust your written word, to love it, and like this young man here who's challenged in this text, that we would pursue it, listen attentively, memorize it by inclining our heart to it, that we would plead for it, and that we would value it like the richest of treasures. Lord, transform your people through your word. Dwell with us as we walk humbly before you. Help us to obey you and love you with hearts that are consecrated to you. Lord, we pray that you would have sovereign leadership over us through your word as well as through submissive hearts that gladly obey. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen.